I'm a Harry the homeowner kind of guy. I'm no Bob Vila, but when a house project needs to get done, I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves and with the help of some power tools and YouTube videos, tackle the project. There are little things more satisfying than completing a house project and looking at it and admiring your work. As any homeowner knows, we tend to leave many house projects unfinished, so there's always something incredibly satisfying about fully completing something on the to-do list. A couple of years ago, I decided to replace our banister around our staircase. I had never done it before, but with the help of a couple of YouTube videos, I took on the task. When I completed the project, I just kept staring at it, admiring my handiwork. My wife even called me out on it and asked if I was just going to keep looking at the banister I'd completed. I couldn't help it. I was proud of what I had built and that I actually had finished the job. When I read the creation account in Genesis, I empathize with God, the creator. Each day as he finished creating, the Bible says that he looked at what he created and saw that it was good. He admired his work. What stands out to me is that God, the great creator, could have kept creating. His creating abilities have no limits after all, but he knew when to stop and declare that it was done. Sometimes the most difficult challenge is to stop tinkering with your creations. When I was a web designer, it was so hard to stop and say, I'm finished, the job's done. I always wanted to tinker a little bit more. There's something else that jumps out at me in the creation story. After God had finished his creation, he noticed something was not quite right. Now it's common to create something and recognize that something is missing. Consider how a chef may invent a new dish, but may also recognize that there are some absent ingredients. The greatest challenge isn't just to recognize that something is missing, but to be able to identify what that something is. In Genesis 2.18, we read that God recognized something wasn't good about his creation, something was missing, and he immediately recognized what it was. Quote, it is not good that man should be alone. End quote. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, and you are listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We have been going through the sacraments in our regular episodes, and today we begin the sacraments of service, starting with marriage. Like I've done with the other sacraments, I'm going to begin by talking about the Jewish roots of marriage. Christianity's context, after all, is Judaism, and so I think it's very helpful to understand the context of our own faith. Returning to the story of Genesis, the Lord said that it is not good that man should be alone. Have you ever wondered why God noticed this? How did he have the intuition to recognize that this was the single problem with his creation? To answer that question, I would invite you to consider the nature of God. Christians believe in the Trinity, that God is one being made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, in a sense, is community. This is something I talked about in episode 6 entitled, With God in Community. Here in the creation story, God created man in his image. Man is complete as a single person, but he is incomplete in the context of the fuller image of the Godhead made up of multiple persons. Thus, God immediately recognized that the communal relationship that he himself enjoys in this complex mystery called the Trinity was lacking in the single person of Adam. Let's go back to Genesis 2.18 because there's something else peculiar about what was missing and what God was going to do about it. Quote, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. End quote. A helper? Boy, that seems awfully utilitarian, doesn't it? In the context of the English language, it almost sounds like God made Adam CEO of Eden and he created Eve to be his administrative assistant. 
Fortunately, the Bible is much bigger than our modern English context. To understand God's intent, we have to understand the Hebrew word translated here as helper. The word is azer. Azer is used a number of times in the Old Testament. In the show notes, I've linked to one of my favorite resources called blueletterbible.org, and you can see all the cross-references that use the word azer. As you browse through the various verses, you will notice a theme. For the vast majority of times that the word azer is used, it refers to God. For example, Exodus 18.4 says, quote, The God of my father was my help, azer, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh, end quote. Deuteronomy 33.26 states, quote, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, majestic through the skies, end quote. Psalm 124.8 states, quote, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, end quote. When God created Eve, he was not creating a co-pilot who was there to support Adam in whatever he did. He was not creating a servant either. He was creating someone that would be the hand of God to Adam. In the creation of man and woman, God was creating a fuller reflection of his being, which though one is an intimate community of multiple persons. Hence, the Bible tells us in Genesis 2.24, quote, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleans to his wife, and they become one flesh, end quote. What does two become one flesh mean? Many have speculated over the years and come up with different theories, such as sexual intercourse or reference to having children. But I think to understand what the Bible means when it says that two will become one flesh, we only need to look at the relationship of the Trinity. In the Trinity, we see this notion of three distinct persons, so intricate, so intertwined, so intimate, that when we look at the three persons, we see one unique being. This is something we'll explore much more in the next episode. This notion of a mystical union of husband and wife implies that there is something inseparable about these two unique persons. They have a singular purpose, a singular mission, a singular intimacy. They are in this together. I think this point often gets lost when we lose sight of the meaning of the Hebrew word azer and instead focus on one person in the relationship rather than the relationship as a whole. For example, many are familiar with God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Growing up, we sang the song called Father Abraham, and it went like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. But how many people remember that God also promised Sarai, Abraham's wife, that she would be the mother of nations? Genesis 17:15 says, quote, "God also said to Abraham, "As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her." End quote. Even Sarah forgot this promise when she, barren in her old age, had Abraham take her servant Hagar as a concubine so that Hagar could bear children for Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was that he would surely give Abraham a son by Sarah. The mission was for Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar, and not Abraham alone. Marriage is a sacred sacrament. In Catholicism, the reason we call it a sacrament is because it contains both a sacred oath and a mystery. We pledge our fidelity to one person till death do us part, and God mysteriously turns two individual persons into one flesh. This is why marriage is so sacred, and the Jewish people acknowledge the sacredness of matrimony with the Hebrew word kiddushin. 
Kiddushin means betrothal and marriage, and a root derivative of the word Kiddushin is Kadosh, which means holy. In Hebrew, if you wanted to say holy, 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 you would say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. It's from that word Kadosh where we get the word Kiddushin, or marriage. To enter into Kiddushin, or marriage, in the Jewish culture, the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish traditions, prescribes three possibilities. The first is that the man can acquire a wife through money. In Hebrew, it's called kesef, and a good comparison is like a dowry. We see this early on in the Bible. In Genesis 24, we're told the story of Abraham's servant finding a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. When the servant found Rebekah, he offered her a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. That was the dowry, or kesef, Abraham offered for Rebekah to become the wife of his son, Isaac. Another way a couple entered into Kishin was through a document, which in Hebrew is called a shetar. This is the most common way now that Jewish people enter into marriage. The husband gives a woman a shetar, a legal document, and a ring. And we see this all the time in our American culture, the signing of a marriage certificate and exchange of a ring. In a shetar, the document includes the phrase, quote, Behold, you are sanctified to me through this document, end quote. Notice the word sanctified, which means holy or set apart. It's from that word sanctified where we get the word sacred. Marriage is a sacred act. The third way a couple entered into Kiddushin was through sexual intercourse. In this method, the man would say to the woman in the presence of two witnesses, quote, Behold, you are sanctified to me through this act of bi'ah, end quote. And then in the witness's view, the couple sequestered themselves and consummated their marriage. We see this in Genesis 29 in the story of Jacob, Abraham's grandson and Isaac's son, who meets his cousin Rachel and wants to marry her. He negotiates a deal with his uncle Laban that he would work for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. After seven years of labor, Jacob said, okay, I'm ready to have Rachel as my wife. However, Laban tricked him and gave him his older daughter, Leah, instead. Now, this is something I never understood growing up. I pictured a traditional wedding with a bride and a groom and officiant leading the ceremony. How did Jacob not notice that he was marrying Leah instead of Rachel? Well, I was thinking about it in my own context and not in the ancient culture of which this took place. There was likely no formal ceremony, though there was a party. What probably happened was that Laban told Leah to go into the tent and then he had directed Jacob in there. It was dark, and the two had sexual relations and consummated their marriage, entering into Kiddushin, and Jacob didn't realize what had happened until he saw Leah's face. Now, technically, for a Kiddushin to be valid, both individuals have to consent to it. One could make the argument that this wasn't a valid Kiddushin since Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah. However, the fact that Jacob does not invalidate the marriage shows us how serious Kiddushin through sexual consummation was. He understood that he had taken Leah as his wife. In our modern culture, we treat sex so casually. I'm often taken aback by how many sitcoms today just make light of sex. In fact, it's considered a much bigger deal to say I love you to someone than to get naked and have intercourse with them. That seems normal to modern society, but it's anything but normal and moral and really very backwards if you spend some time thinking about it. 
If you wonder why many religious groups forbid sex before marriage, it's because of this. Because sexual intercourse in the context of scripture and many ancient civilizations is an act of marriage. When a man took a woman sexually, he was promising to provide for her for the rest of her life. And so that sexual intimate union where a man and woman's bodies forged together was an outward sign of an inward grace. The two had become one flesh. Now, obviously, when we look in the Bible, we see examples of people having sex outside of the context of that marriage relationship. David had an affair with Bathsheba. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Samson slept with Delilah. We could look at these examples and say, see, just because people had sex doesn't mean that they were married. But just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's permissible. Those sexual lustful relationships had some pretty dire consequences. And I think that's the lesson scripture aims to teach. The same can be said about polygamy. Just because we see examples of polygamy in the Bible doesn't mean that God endorsed it. In fact, it seems like just about every polygamous relationship in the Bible unraveled one way or another. Abraham took Hagar, Sarah's servant, as his wife, and Sarah became jealous and forced Hagar to leave. Jacob not only married Leah, but also Rachel and their handmaidens Bilhah and Zilpah, and he loved Rachel more than the others. And the sons that Jacob had with Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah hated and resented Rachel's son Joseph because Jacob loved him more because he loved Rachel more. Not only is polygamy messy, but it doesn't fit with the proclamation that two will become one flesh. The Bible does not say three or four or five will become one flesh. Despite what Lubega claims in his song Mambo Number no. 5, God did not create Eve and Monica and Erica and Rita and Tina and Sandra and Mary and Jessica for Adam. He created Eve for Adam. And if a woman is the Azer, and the Azer is the hand of God, then the Azer is sufficient for man. The oldest sin is the sin of not being satisfied with God's provision. It wasn't enough to Adam and Eve that they could eat from all the trees in the Garden of Eden except for one. And so they ate the forbidden fruit and suffered the consequences. What do we make of divorce then? We most likely all know people who have been divorced. Divorce is a common practice today. Divorce was also permitted in ancient Judaism, but we see this practice clarified by Jesus. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, says, quote, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be enjoined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, It is because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. End quote. It's easy to focus on the nuances here of whether a divorce is permissible or not, which is the angle that the Pharisees took. But I want you to take notice as to the underlying principle that Jesus presents. He said, God created man and woman, they are joined together, and they become one flesh. He specifically says, quote, they are no longer two, but one flesh, end quote. 
Imagine with me how these Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to talk about the legalities of dissolving a marriage. But Jesus isn't focused on that. He's focused on what marriage is and means and should be. He's likely picturing his own intimate relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They were distinct but inseparable. Different persons but so intertwined that they were one being. So the notion that one could or would sever that relationship must have seemed so unfathomable to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. No wonder Jesus said, quote, what God has joined together, let no one separate, end quote. Now you may be listening to this and you've been divorced and you're thinking, you don't understand. My spouse was a monster, abusive, an adulterer or whatever. And I get it. However, what I want to focus on in this discussion on the sacrament of marriage is not the brokenness that leads to brokenness, but rather how do we enter into marriage in such a way that reflects the intricate relationship of God? In other words, how would our marriage be different if we reflected the Trinity? That's our topic for next time. But let me leave you with this final thought. The last thing that God creates in the Genesis account isn't just a woman. It's marriage. Humanity begins with marriage. In Western society today, people think of marriage as the last thing you do after you've done all the other things you want to achieve in life. We often refer to it as settling down. This is not a biblical idea. In the Bible, we see marriage at the very beginning as well as the very end with the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. The Bible begins with marriage and the Bible ends with marriage. Marriage is central to God's creation. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode and other pertinent information in your email inbox. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. Go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbert, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.